going to look at Psalm 19 this morning, and Lord willing, next week as well. Psalm 19 is a psalm about God revealing himself. It's about God's revelation and our response to that revelation. Uh, we're going to cover this psalm in two parts today, and as I said, next Sunday as well, Lord willing. But there are actually three sections to this psalm, so I want to outline it for you as we begin this morning. Verses 1 to 6 are about how God reveals himself in the world. Verses 7 through 11 are about how God reveals himself in his word. And then verses 12 through 14 are about how God reveals himself in his worshipers, that is, in the hearts and consciences of his people. So really, you can think about it this way, if you want an easy way to think about the three different sections of this psalm. We uh, come to know God in three different ways. We look up to the heavens, we look down to the scriptures, and we look inward to our own hearts where God convicts us of our sin. God has given us a witness in these three ways, and Psalm 19 shows us how these three forms of witness work together in the Christian life. Today we're going to cover the first part, the first witness, the first six verses of this psalm. We're going to look at how God reveals himself in his world, how God speaks and God reveals in and through the things he has made. Creation is a revelation of God. Creation reveals its creator. Consider just the first four verses. These verses are very obviously full of references to the creation account uh, back in Genesis chapter 1. Listen to what David says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. There are all kinds of things to notice here. One thing that I think is very evident here and throughout the whole of this psalm is that David has written beautiful poetry to celebrate God's beauty in creation, which of course points us to the beauty of the creator. C.S. Lewis is perhaps the greatest expert in literature, literature and poetry that the modern world has produced. He had this to say about Psalm 19. He said, this is the greatest poetry in the Psalter. So of all 150 Psalms, this is the greatest poetry in the Psalter, and indeed one of the greatest lyrics in the history of the world. This is a poem, this is a, a, a lyric, a song that is unmatched in its beauty. But Psalm 19 is more than just pretty poetry. When it comes to Psalm 19, the theology is as wonderful as the poetry. And so, we could say here that David has written a poem about the poetry of God. We could think of creation as God's poetry. Creation is God's artistry. God is the great artist, and creation is the canvas on which he has worked his masterpiece. You know, the greatest works of art always point beyond themselves to something higher and deeper. That's how it is with all great works of art. They always point beyond themselves. And so it is with the creation. The creation is constantly pointing beyond itself to its creator. Which is to say, nature is not merely natural. 
Nature is always already graced with the presence and power of God. Nature reveals the supernatural God, the God who is beyond nature, reveals himself in nature, in the things he has made. So nature is not some kind of veil between us and God. Rather, nature is a vehicle of God's communication to us. In fact, you could put it this way, uh, because David here talks about how uh, various aspects of the creation pour forth speech. Nature is a divine loudspeaker, cranked up to the highest volume. God is constantly speaking to us, preaching to us through his creation. Nature preaches a sermon to us every day. Nature preaches to us about God constantly. David says here, the heavens reveal the glory of God. And that means we have a revelation of the glory of God surrounding us every day. We behold the glory of God every day. The glory of God surrounds us as surely as the sky above us. The sky is full of wisdom. The sky is full of glory. The sky is a divine revelation. Now we might ask the question, how does this happen? How does God reveal himself through the heavens? Well, there are many ways the heavens reveal God's glory, certainly in their vastness and their orderliness, certainly in their beauty and their functionality, certainly in their majesty and their harmony. Think about this. The heavens are perfectly engineered. In the heavens, form and function match one another. The heavens are obviously the design and the work of a supreme architect and builder. The heavens are obviously the workmanship of a master craftsman. This is not the only place where David was awestruck by the glory of God revealed in the heavens. In Psalm 8, David says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? David could look up at the vastness of the sky and it humbled him and made him realize just how small he really is. The great expanse of the heavens, David says there, points us to a great God and also a caring and compassionate God. A God who stoops to care for a tiny creature, man, living on a tiny blue speck, earth, in a vast, vast cosmos. How can anyone look up at the sky day or night and not want to worship the God who made it. The heavens day and night reveal the glory of God. How can you see a dazzling sunset or a shooting star or a full moon hanging low in the sky and not be drawn to worship the one who so elegantly and exquisitely crafted all of it? The glory of God is proclaimed through the heavens. Obviously, David is not really speaking as a scientist in Psalm 19 when he says the heavens declare God's glory. But, you know, it's interesting. Many scientists in contemplating the heavens, in studying the heavens, have found David's declaration to be true. They have found the, the art, the beauty, the orderliness of the universe point unmistakably to a divine designer, to a creator. Certainly this was true for the founders of modern astronomy, men like Kepler and Bray and Copernicus, and yes, even Galileo, all believed that the heavens declared the glory of God, that the heavens revealed a wise and powerful creator. 
more recently the founder of NASA, Werner von Braun. He actually did work at the Redstone Arsenal uh, here in our state. He's been called the father of rocket science, uh, the father of space travel. Werner von Braun had Psalm 19.1 engraved on his tombstone because he spent enough time staring up into the heavens to realize the heavens declare the glory of God. And indeed, modern scientists, the more they discover about the universe, the more they discover about the, 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 the cosmos, they keep piling up more and more evidence that shows us the wisdom and glory of God found in the heavens, found in the world all around us. One example of this is the so-called fine-tuning of the universe, that the universe has very obviously been designed and engineered with very precise conditions, just the kinds of conditions needed for life on our planet to thrive. You change even um, any number of thousands upon thousands of different constants, and life would suddenly be impossible. Clearly... Life on our planet is not a matter of accident or chance. It could not be. Again, the further scientists go in their investigation into the universe, the more they can lead us into a deeper understanding of the creator's wisdom. See, true science, true scientific investigation is not at all opposed to a biblical understanding of the world or to our theology. It actually reinforces the truth that the universe really is the handiwork of God. And so you might say scientists and theologians meet at the top of the mountain. True science is not opposed to true theology. This is how the astronomer Robert Jastrow put it. I find this interesting. He says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. And indeed, that is exactly right. I, I love the way Louis Pasteur put it. Louis Pasteur was a, was a Christian, a pioneer scientist, did all kinds of great work. Pasteur said, a little science might distance you from God, but a lot of science will bring you nearer to him. Because you see the, the beauty, the wisdom reflected in God's world. But of course, it's not just the heavens that reveal God's glory. That's David's focus here. But the reality is everything God made reveals the glory of God. John Calvin once said that, that God created the universe to be a theater of his glory. The universe is a theater in which God puts his glory on display. In every way, the universe communicates truth to us about God. The creation preaches a sermon to us every second of every day, to every person that's ever lived. David says in Psalm 19, again, day after day pours forth speech. Pouring forth there, that, that describes a, a fountain or a gusher. It's like creation is just gushing with speech about God. Constantly talking about God, as it were. Constantly giving us truth about God. Everyone knows there's a God inescapably because we are surrounded by God's revelation. David goes on, he says, day after day, pours forth speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is knowledge about God to be found in the world all around us. Now you might say, well, if God has surrounded us with this revelation of himself, if everything in the sky and indeed everything all around us reveals the glory of God, why do so many people clearly 
reject God? What's going on? If night unto night is giving out this knowledge of God and day after day is pouring forth, just gushing with this speech about God, why don't people acknowledge that? If they know it, why don't they act on it? Well, the reality is just because God reveals himself in his creation does not mean that man will always accept God's revelation through the created order. And indeed, Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 1. Paul in Romans 1 picks up on what David says in Psalm 19 and in other places in the Psalter. Paul in Romans 1 says, the truth about God is manifest in what God has made. Paul says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen. God has made himself visible. He's made himself seen. He's the invisible God, but he makes himself visible in the things he has made. And so Paul says, man is without excuse if he fails to receive this revelation. Paul goes on to say, even though men know God through what he has made in their wickedness, men have suppressed this truth. See, Paul here uh, then then goes on to describe the the result of suppressing what God has plainly revealed in the created order. God has made himself manifest in the things he has made. He's clearly revealed himself in the things he has made. Man suppresses that truth. And then Paul goes on to describe the result of man suppressing what God has plainly revealed in the created order. Paul says in Romans 1 that men have become futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts are darkened. It's not that men aren't smart. It's not that they don't have a high enough IQ. But it's that their hearts are dark. Their minds are given over to folly. Having rejected the God who made the natural world, they reject their own natural design. And Paul says they even engage in unnatural sexual practices. That's how far they take their rejection of God. You reject God, you reject reality. You reject God, you reject God's design for the created order. And that means you reject God's design for you as one who is made in his image. And Paul is showing the tragic consequences of this. And, of course, Paul also says in Romans chapter 1, all of this reveals God's wrath. All of this provokes God's wrath, and all of this leads God to give men over to their own depravity. Now, again, we might ask, why would man suppress the knowledge God gives through his work of creation? And, again, Paul explains this. It is because this creational revelation of God, this revelation of God through the created order makes moral demands on us. It makes moral claims that men in their wickedness want to reject. God's revelation of himself in the creation demands a response, and Paul describes that response as thanking and glorifying God. That's the twofold response we're to make to God's revelation of himself in the creation. We're to thank God and we're to glorify God as our creator. Men who don't want to thank anybody, men who don't want to glorify God because they want to be gods themselves, such men will twist and distort God's clear revelation in the creation. They're without excuse, Paul says. There is no excuse for doing this. The revelation is still there. It's always there. It's inescapable. They know God, but they suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 even suggests, I think, that sinners become quite skilled in suppressing the plainly revealed truth of God. 
There's some who will suppress the truth that God has revealed in the created order by saying there is no God. They become agnostic or atheists. And they'll say, well, the universe just came into existence by chance through the Big Bang. And life arose from non-life by chance. And personality and morality arose from the impersonal and the amoral by chance. And order arose from disorder by chance. Now, does that sound believable? But see, wicked men would rather believe in the fairy tale of chance than thank and glorify the God who made them. It's utterly foolish. That's why Paul says in Psalm 14:1, the fool declares in his heart, there is no God. The fool in scripture, that's not an intellectual category, that's a moral category. His mind is darkened because he's rebelled against God. He can't see clearly the world around him, what's plainly revealed, because he's in rebellion against God. He's blinded himself to the truth God has plainly revealed. So you have to accept all kinds of folly if you reject God. But here's another strategy, actually much more common than the atheist strategy. Men will suppress the truth by substituting an idol for the true God. Again, John Calvin, Calvin said, the heart of fallen man is an idol factory. Man's heart is constantly producing idols. And Paul describes this idolatry in Romans chapter 1. He describes it as man exchanging God's truth for a lie and exchanging the worship of the creator for the worship of a creature. Again, this is foolish and dehumanizing. Man will worship a less than being, some, create, some, some aspect of the creation, rather than own up to his creator and thank and glorify the God who made them. Now, putting Psalm 19 and Romans 1 together, we can say not just the heavens, but again, everything God has made communicates truth. Everything God made communicates to us truth about God, and that truth demands a response. You could say the universe is a system of revelation. Really, you could say it's a symbolic system of revelation. God has invested everything he has made with meaning. We don't get to assign whatever meaning we want to the things God has made. One of the great lies of the world today is that meaning in the world is socially constructed. We can give whatever meaning we want to the things in the world around us. No, that is a lie. The things, God has, the things God made have the meaning that God assigned to them. They mean what God has made them to mean. Uh, everything that God has made has intrinsic meaning given to it by God. It has a design, it has a function, it has a purpose given to it by God. Created things make the uncreated God perceptible. The visible reveals the invisible. Visible things make God's invisible attributes visible to us. And so we can't see God, but we look at the world around us and we can see God's power and righteousness and wisdom and compassion all shining through the created order. You could say the natural image is the spiritual. God made the world to reveal himself. So the natural image is the spiritual. The temporal reveals the eternal 
God is like an artist, and every fact in the universe is part of his artwork. And God is like an artist who has put his signature on every single thing he has made. Every fact in the universe bear God's signature. God's fingerprints are everywhere, all throughout the universe. And again, we can catch traces and glimpses of this. We can catch glimpses and traces of who God is throughout the creation. As verse 3 says, there is no place anyone can go to escape God's revelation in the creation and the demands it puts on us. There is no place where God's creational speech is not heard. His truth goes out through all the earth. The whole creation is filled with God's speech. Creation's words, so obviously it's nonverbal, but the way David describes it here, creation's speech, creation's words, David says, reach the whole world. Creation's speech goes out to the ends of the earth. You know, humans speak many different languages. We speak English, German, and Mandarin, all these different languages. But creation's speech comes to all of us. Creation speaks clearly to all of us. That's a language that all of us know inescapably. God's revelation is comprehensive. It's constant. It's not just accessible to us if we put forth the effort. No, it is inescapable. It's, it's always there. We cannot get away from it. We cannot avoid it. C.S. Lewis, again, put this so well. He said, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. In fact, I find it really, really interesting. Uh, in Psalm 19, verse 4, he says, their line, so speaking about the creation, he says, their line has gone out through all the earth. That word line could also be translated as sound or even as music it indicates. The line is probably an allusion to the string of a musical instrument. It's as if David is saying creation's song, the song to the creator that creation is always singing, that song has gone out everywhere. See, creation's revelation is not verbal. It's not literally speech. But think about this. Music can communicate with us. Music is a nonverbal form of communication. And so David is saying here, creation communicates with us in a way that is analogous to music. Creation sings God's song. Creation is communicating to us about God constantly. One way, one helpful way, I think, to consider the revelatory meaning that God has built into the world is to consider the symbolism that God has built into everything. See, when I say God has invested everything he has made with meaning, this is really one way of getting at that meaning. Jonathan Edwards described it this way. He said, creation is filled with images of divine things. That is to say, creation is filled with images or symbols or pictures of divine things truths, which is to say that everything everywhere symbolizes or images some truth about God. God is speaking everywhere all the time to everyone in everything he has made. And so the whole creation is a kind of webbed network full of symbols and images of God, metaphors that point us to God, or analogies and patterns and pictures, again, all of which point us to God. And so if we begin to look at the world the way God wants us to look at the world, if we look at the world the way that God and his word trains us to look at his world, we will begin to see these images, these revelations of divine truth everywhere around us. So Psalm 19 mentions the heavens, and we've talked about that. 
Uh, let's take another image that the Psalter gives us. Psalm 19 does not mention trees, but Psalm 1 does. Psalm 1 mentions trees. So think about the meaning of trees. What meaning has God invested into trees? We encounter trees every day. We probably don't think a whole lot about trees. But trees have an incredibly deep and rich meaning. Think about the symbolism of trees. Trees are important in the Bible from beginning to end. The fall happened at a tree. Redemption happens at a tree. And there are different types of trees that symbolize different truths about God and different truths about man because man bears God's image. And so Psalm 1 says the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water bearing fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. So David says in Psalm 1, the righteous man is like a tree. He's really like a tree of life bearing fruit constantly, giving life to others through his fruit. He's like a tree of life. He's really like a tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it goes on to describe how this man who is righteous possesses wisdom and discernment, which that's, of course, associated with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He can discern good from evil. A good man like a tree points to the heavens. A good man like a tree is even a kind of ladder to the heavens, you could say, that others can climb on. And then think about this. Psalm 1 talks about a a solitary tree, a righteous man, a godly man bearing fruit. In the book of Revelation, there's a whole grove, a whole garden full of trees that represent righteous men. A community full of righteous men is like a garden full of good fruit. Good fruit bearing trees. But then this is interesting. Psalm 1 describes the righteous man as a fruit-bearing tree. It goes on to say that the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. You know what the chaff is? The chaff is a useless part of a plant, like the useless part of a grain plant. David is saying the wicked are also like a kind of plant, but the wicked are like tumbleweed. Or elsewhere, we we could say the wicked are like thorns that constantly get in the way of what is good. See, when you begin to see the meaning God has invested in different kinds of vegetation, different kinds of plant life, different kinds of trees, you start to see how, oh yes, the world around me is filled with the glory of God. It's filled with divine images, with this revelation of divine truth. When you see trees, you are seeing divinely designed symbols. You are seeing a revelation of God's glory and God's wisdom. You're seeing a glimpse of God's goodness, God's glorious goodness, God's glorious wisdom. That's trees. We could go on and do the same with sun, moon, and stars. Go read Job 38 to see what the stars, what the constellations can teach. Uh, The same is true of animals of various sorts. Go read Job 12 to see what the animals can teach you. The same is true of rocks and precious metals and gemstones. The same is true of the ocean and rivers and mountains and rain and wind. All of these features of the created universe point us to God in various ways. Ways. These are all sensible things that image the divine vehicles through which God makes known his glory, his goodness, his truth, his wisdom. Again, we are literally surrounded by the glory of God. We are enveloped constantly by the glory of God. Now, next week I'm going to show you why you need what is sometimes called special revelation, that is scripture, why you need the Bible. God's written word 
to rightly interpret his creational revelation. We need special revelation to rightly understand creational revelation. I've kind of hinted at that already. God never intended for us to figure out the symbolic truths built into the creation on our own. From the very beginning, yes, even before the fall, God gave man spoken verbal revelation to be the lens through which we would interpret the world. So John Calvin said we have to put on scripture like a pair of glasses to help us to see the world clearly now that we're fallen creatures. You know, we don't see the world clearly as we should. Even before the fall, God gave to man a, a, a verbal revelation to help him understand these creational truths. But the creational truths are there. And it's really interesting to me, when you read Psalm 19, again, those first six verses deal with God's revelation of his glory through the things he has made. And then David shifts in verse 7 to God's revelation of himself in his law, in his word. And it's interesting, David moves seamlessly from God's revelation in the world to God's revelation in the word. As if the two just go Together, creational revelation and scriptural revelation form one system of revelation. They are designed to work together and to fit together and to reinforce each other. Sometimes theologians talk about God's two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. You have to have both. And we have to receive both by faith. By faith, we grasp the teaching of the creation and we come to understand the world's meaning. By faith, we grasp the teaching of Scripture and come to understand the gospel revealed in God's written word. Now, it's interesting, too, to consider special revelation can do some things that creational revelation cannot do. Creational revelation is sufficient for its purpose, but it's not sufficient. We must have scriptural revelation as well. Later, and I'll just, I'll just show you how this works. Later in this psalm, David says the law of the Lord, so that is the word of the Lord. We could say scripture. He says scripture is perfect and revives the soul. David never says anything about creational revelation reviving or restoring the soul. Creational revelation doesn't have the same redemptive power as biblical revelation. In fact, I think it's interesting, in verse 10, David compares the teaching of Scripture to the revelation of God's goodness in honey. He says, your law is sweeter than honey. But there's a comparison being made between God's revelation of himself in Scripture and God's revelation of himself in honey, this created thing. And obviously, honey is given to us to reveal God's goodness, God's sweetness. But David says, Scripture is even sweeter and so biblical revelation is superior to creational revelation in certain ways. Honey can teach you some things about God's sweetness, but scripture can teach you much, much more. And so scripture is much to be preferred to honey. Even though honey can teach us about the goodness of God, scripture is even better. So there's that to consider. This means there is no reason to think that fallen sinful people can be saved by the witness of God in creation alone. Romans 1 does not suggest that. It says, again, God has manifested himself clearly through what he has made, but left to themselves, men will suppress and twist and distort this revelation in the creation. And so in a fallen world, the gospel message found here in the Bible, the gospel message is always necessary. The gospel message found in scripture must be proclaimed 
for sinners to find forgiveness. Think about this. The creational witness leaves man without excuse for his idolatry. The scriptural witness brings man a message of forgiveness for his idolatry. Creational revelation leaves man without excuse. Scriptural revelation brings man a message of forgiveness. And so clearly then, God wants gospel preaching, Bible teaching, to be spread just as far and wide as creational revelation. We didn't read it this morning, but I find it so interesting. In Romans chapter 10, Paul is describing the work of missionaries going to the Gentiles, missionaries going out to all nations. And he says in this context, he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So it's the preaching of the gospel that awakens faith in people's hearts. That's what God uses to bring people to faith, the preaching of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. And then Paul quotes Psalm 19, 4. He quotes from the first part of this psalm. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But that's a really odd use of Psalm 19.4 because, again, Psalm 19.4 in its original context is talking about creation's voice. The voice that people hear to the ends of the earth is the voice of God through creation. And yet in Romans chapter 10, the voice that is to be heard to the ends of the earth is the voice of missionaries preaching the gospel. The missionaries are to go out to the ends of the earth. And so this might seem like a case where, oh, has the Apostle Paul been sloppy? Has he misquoted scripture? Did he just misremember what Psalm 19.4 is really about? What is Paul doing? Well, no, of course he's not confused. He's, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. What he's indicating is this. He's saying missionaries should take the gospel into the whole creation and they should cover over creation's voice with the voice of the gospel preacher. Preachers should add their witness to the witness of creation. Uh, Paul is, says that there is this universal witness of creation, but that universal witness of creation is a foreshadowing of the coming universal proclamation of the gospel to all people in all places. We would say creational revelation reaches everywhere. Creational revelation reaches everywhere in every place in every corner of the universe. And Paul is saying gospel preachers, preachers taking the scriptures with them ought to go to the same ends of the earth with the gospel message, the biblical message. General revelation has reached everywhere. Special revelation, the Bible, must reach everywhere as well. But I think there's even something more going on. Paul can align the voice of creation with the voice of scripture because, again, creation and scripture reveal the same God. And I would say they even reveal the same Savior because the Creator is the Redeemer. This is really, really important. I'm going to close out with this. I want you to think about this. This is so important for us to understand. There is nothing sub-Christian about creational revelation. There is nothing sub-Christian about creational revelation. In fact, creational revelation is Christian Revelation. It reveals the same God, the same creator, the same redeemer, the same gospel even, you might say. And I can show this to you. Think about light for just a minute. Light is obviously part of creational revelation. David says here in the part of this psalm about creational revelation, day, that is the light time, pours forth 
speech. He says the heavens, which the heavens are full of light bearers, sun, moon, and stars, the heavens declare God's glory. But then we can ask the question, what or who is the light of the world? Or the way the Old Testament prophets like Malachi might put it, who is the son, S-U-N, who is the son of righteousness? Obviously, the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. John even tells us in the first chapter of his gospel, Jesus is the light that gives light to every man. Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world. Light doesn't just reveal a generic, nameless, faceless deity. Light reveals Jesus. Creation, rightly interpreted, does not just show us there is a God out there, there is some higher power out there. Creational revelation, rightly understood, points us to Jesus. Creation reveals Jesus, and it has to be this way. Think about Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8, we find that God created the world by and through his wisdom. But who is the wisdom of God? It's Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 tells us the creation was made by Christ and for Christ and is held together in Christ. And so, of course, creation reveals and proclaims Christ. He is creation's creator. He is the one holding the creation together. When Romans 1 says what may be known about God is made plain in the creation, he's saying it is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and indeed Jesus himself who is revealed in the creation. It cannot be any other way because there is no other God. It cannot be any other way because there is no other God. If creation reveals a God, it must be the true God because that's the only God there is. And what creation reveals is not just some minimal information Again, about some generic higher power. No, creation reveals the truth about the true God. And that means creation, rightly understood, reveals Jesus. And scripture shows us this again and again and again. Revelation 5.13 says, Every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and in the sea sings, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Creation's line has gone out. Creation's music has gone out. Creation is singing a song. And who is creation praising with that song? The one who sits on the throne. The Lamb of God. The Lord Jesus Christ. Creation sings his song. Creation is tuned to sing praises to Jesus. Creation points to Jesus and creation as a whole worships Jesus. Martin Luther got this. Luther says, our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in the Bible alone, but in every leaf in springtime. God's given us a picture of the gospel with the seasons. How the world dies and then it comes back to life. Every single year, we get this picture. See, true natural theology is Christian theology. True natural theology is gospel theology. 
And I would say David has actually already made this point in Psalm 19. And he's made it so beautifully and so powerfully there in verses 4 to 6. Really, it's everywhere. But verses 4 to 6 really stand out to me. Because as David is talking about how the heavens declare the glory of God, what takes center stage, what takes center stage is the sun. It's so important to understand what's going on here. David describes the sun making its daily trek across the sky. The sun rises, it moves across the sky, and it sets. And what does the sun do? The sun fills the world with its warmth, casting its light on everything. And then David makes a couple of comparisons. He says the sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his tabernacle. The sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. And then he says, the son rejoices like a strong man winning his race. Now we might ask, why is David making these comparisons? Why compare the son to a bridegroom on his wedding day or to a strong athlete or a warrior who's winning his competition? Who is the bridegroom? Who is the athlete? Who is the warrior? The son represents. The son is a joyful bridegroom and a victorious warrior. Who is it? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The son reveals Jesus. God has given us the son as a created picture of his son. Indeed, Revelation 1 even tells us the face of Jesus shines like the sun. So think about this. If the sun symbolizes Jesus, the sun is merely a symbol of Jesus, and yet the sun is bright enough to burn your eyes, even though it's 92 million miles away. At 92 million miles away, it can still burn your eyes. Imagine what it is like to be in the presence of the real thing, face to face, close up. A light infinitely brighter than the sun. The sun merely symbolizes it. And it's not going to be 92 million miles away. No, we're going to be face to face with Jesus. Face to face with his uncreated light. That's the reality to which the sun points. See, God has given us everything in the world so we can grasp who Jesus is because all of it, everything in the world reveals Jesus and points to the glory of Jesus. The heavens declare the, the, the glory of Jesus. The earth reveals the glory of Jesus. Everything reveals the glory of Jesus. God has given us the creation full of glorious sights and sounds and tastes all so that we can know Jesus better and enjoy him more fully. Creation is designed to reveal Jesus to us. All of reality is designed to show us the glory of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Let us continue our worship by giving of our tithes and offerings.